Number 94.18, Antonio Mastrobono versus uh, Shearson Lehman Hutton. Mr. Chief Justice, may it please the Court. Um, the issue presented in this case is a straightforward one, um, identified by paragraph 13 of the client's agreement, which was presented to the Master Bonos. Antonio Master Bono, teacher of medieval history, and his wife, an artist. And the client's agreement provision provides, in relevant part, this agreement shall be governed by the laws of the state of New York. This is a choice of law uh, clause. It then moves forward into a comprehensive arbitration agreement. Now, the the point, I guess, which uh, we diverge on, myself and Shearson's counsel, is just essentially what was agreed uh, by the master bonus. Parenthetically, to suggest that they agreed to give up any substantive rights knowingly is preposterous. But what they are said to have agreed. They are said to have agreed uh, to the Garrity Rule by the first sentence of paragraph 13. The Garrity Rule, a rule in New York of approximately 20 years, states essentially that arbitrators are not empowered to grant punitive damages. And therefore, essentially, resort must have to be taken to the judicial forum. You move to the next aspect of the agreement, the comprehensive agreement, which uh, relates to arbitration. And it is straightforward. Agree to arbitrate any controversy arising out of or relating to my accounts, the transactions with you, your officers, directors, agents, or employees. The branch state shall be settled by arbitration in accordance with the rules in effect of the National Association of Securities, Stephen. Now, the, the, the point that we have sought to stress in our papers is that either the the FAA is going to be employed, or it isn't. So, if the assertion is that the only judicial forum, the only forum in New York available for punitive damages to the master bonus is a judicial forum, because of the comprehensive nature of the arbitration and the statements of this court, time and again, that if punitive damages are to be obtained only in a judicial form, then there is a preemption because federal law applies. Mr. Hart, um, does the uh, ultimate resolution of this case depend upon what it is the parties contracted to do with regard to this matter? It can be, yes. And in that regard, uh, help me out a little bit. 
It isn't clear to me that the arbitrator ever interpreted the party's agreement. There was language that indicated that as a matter of equity or, or justice or something, the arbitrator thought that punitive should be awarded, but it was not expressly stated that uh, the arbitrator was interpreting the party's agreement as permitting the award of punitive damages. Well, there was a reference made in the arbitrator's award that reliance was placed upon some papers filed by the master bonus. We assert in our uh, supplemental brief that, indeed, within those papers was the statement that, look, there is preemption. And I frankly don't know and can't help you because all I have is what the arbitrator said. But it would seem to me that they had to interpret it in order to get to a resolution. They had in front of them... Well, I wasn't asking you about preemption. I was asking about what the parties Agreed. provided in their agreement as a matter of, of contract interpretation. They did would they have, or did they not uh, contemplate the award of punitive damages as a possibility? It would be my view that necessarily they would have had to do that and did because the issues were all presented to them. If we are to look into that uh, determination, necessarily you would have to assume that they had interpreted what the parties had agreed to and what they had not agreed to. But they also said they agreed to be bound by the laws of the state of New York. Uh, yes, Mr. Chief Justice. And the laws of the, the state of New York do not allow arbitrators to award punitive damages. Well, what... The Garrity Rule states that you do have punitive damages. You have them in a judicial forum. Well, but the, However, you the, cannot the, get them from an arbitrator. Uh, are you questioning my statement that the law of the state of New York says that arbitrators cannot award punitive damages? No. Well, then, uh, well, what difference does it make to rephrase it to say you can get punitive damages in a non-arbitral uh, arbitral forum, i.e., a judicial forum? Because the, the, they, they've, uh, they've agreed to be bound by the laws of the state of New York. The laws of the state of New York says arbitrators can't give punitive damages. Yes. However, you move to the next sentence. The next sentence in the comprehensive arbitration agreement is that the parties are going to arbitrate any controversy. Now, at that point, one of the controversies would be that the master bonus were entitled to punitive damages in a judicial forum. Now, if now, you... Did the contract also provide that the MASD rules apply? Yes. To any arbitration? Yes. Now, under the NASD rules, is it clear that punitives can be awarded or not? Yes. So there may be a conflict in the, in the terms of the contract? Yes. One of our points is that the NASD... So it may become important to know what the parties intended. Yes. Is, is it correct, Mr. Hart, that the NASD rules do not require... Um, punitives to be awarded, nor do they preclude it. They, the NASD rules are simply agnostic on the question. Isn't that correct? 
That's correct. Uh, so, however, so what we have is, is a juxtaposition of NASD rules which do not answer the question. They leave the question open. And a New York uh, common law rule which does answer the question to the effect that an arbitrator may, may not, in fact, award punitive damages. Is, is, there, is there any conflict there that needs to be resolved? I would respectfully submit, uh, <coughs> Justice Souter, that if the NSAD rules are interpreted themselves, they're interpreted by the manual, and the manual addresses the arbitrators that they are permitted to grant punitive damages. But not required. In other words, it's, it's left open. Well, I assume that they are required if they're going to arbitrate any controversy. And one of the controversies was punitive damages. If it's given to them, they must. So you're uh, saying on the point in question, uh, the the, the NASD rules really are not agnostic. Uh, They say you can award them. New York law says you can't. Clear conflict. That's, That's your position. Well, my position is that, no, my position is that when you put in a comprehensive arbitration agreement to arbitrate any controversy, then the NSAD rules are required to move forward with that issue. And the arbitrators must address it because, obviously, it is a controversy then that would be left uh, not uh, resolved. Let, let me ask you a different kind of question. Um, under the FAA, uh, there may be a judicial appeal on the question of whether an arbitrator uh, has exceeded his authority as an arbitrator. Yes. Uh, isn't the question here whether an arbitrator may or may not award punitive damages an issue properly uh, considered as one of the arbitrator's authority? Under the FAA? Yeah. Under the FAA, it is my view that the arbitrators can, should, and must uh, award punitive damages. No, but that's, if it that's, is a controversy. Me, no, that's, that's not my question. The question is, is the issue of whether they may award punitive damages an issue of their authority which is subject to judicial appeal? I do not believe that is an issue. I believe that is resolved, has been resolved continuously. Why isn't it an issue of the arbitrator's authority? One side says you may award punitive damages uh, under our contract. The other side says you may not. Isn't that an issue of the arbitrator's authority? All I want to know is whether that is subject to a judicial appeal. Uh, And it seems to me that it is an issue of the arbitrator's authority. Respectfully, I I believe the issue is resolved with the arbitrator's determination. So that there can never be an appeal uh, to the courts on that issue under the FAA? As to the authority, I believe that the FAA as it has been construed by this Court, states, essentially, that where the parties agree to arbitrate any controversy, which is the issue here, any controversy, and it is given to the arbitrators, then they have the authority. Uh, well, that, I think what you're telling me is the answer to the question, if there is an appeal on that subject. I simply want to know at this stage of the game, uh, is the question of the arbitrator's authority to award punitive damages an issue which is properly subject to, an, to a, a, the, the, the a judicial power, appeal under the FAA? The, the power of the arbitrators, 
I would say, yes, we have stated that that is an issue. The, uh, the United States says that it is not an issue. It is not uh, an issue to be resolved by the, uh, uh, the courts. Once the arbitrators have determined the scope of the agreement and their authority, it is not subject to uh, appeal to the court system. May, may I ask you this question, and it's uh, along the same line of the questions the Chief Justice was asking about the status of the laws of New York. Suppose you have two people in New York. It's a hypothetical case. Two people in New York, they sign an agreement where they say, we simply agree to arbitrate. Yes. It happens that their transaction occurs in New York, and the arbitrator applies New York law. Uh, do you take the position that in that case the FAA uh, displaces the Garrity rule? Uh, yes. Um, All right. So, be, your, so your uh, position then is that the FAA preempts the Garrity rule? Uh, yes. It is stated in our papers. Assuming there is no choice of law agreement, assuming the most significant context rule is applied in conflict, Assuming that the choice of law is necessarily under the New York law, New York law, and the Garrity rule applies uh, to uh, New York law, it is clear that when, in our view, anyway, where you agree to a comprehensive resolution to resolve any controversy, that uh, uh, federal law would preempt the New York law. And so I take it it's your further position, or or am I correct about this, that when the parties incorporate New York law in an agreement where they expressly refer to New York law, yes. they incorporate New York law subject to federal rules of preemption? Correct. That it is the federal law which applies to the comprehensive arbitration agreement. Now, how, how, do you state that, how do you reconcile your position with our decision in the Volt case several years ago? Well, the, if I can just continue a response, uh, well, I will respond to Volt. It is, I guess, uh, uh, to some surprise that we look at Volt differently from the other side. It would seem that everybody would simply accept Volt as written. <laughs> you know what was said, but... Our position is that Volt is entirely consistent, your decision in Volt, uh, because what you said there is, look, we're, we're going to take a look at what's happening here. And if the California statute is such that it says we're going to wait with respect to arbitration, there are other litigants involved, the issue may re be resolved, there is no magic in the procedure, it does not appear to us to be inconsistent with what the FAA is seeking to do. There is no removal of our, our, our right under arbitration. And you state, quote, if I may, the FAA, quote, preempts state laws which require a judicial forum for the resolution of claims which the contracting parties agreed to resolve by arbitration, end quote. So what I say is that also in Volt, you said Section 3 and 4 uh, have never been implied to uh, state for I. 
only to this court, but we're dealing with Section 2, and we're dealing with an entirely different issue here. This, this issue is that the Garrity Rule forecloses punitive damages in an arbitrable form. And, and that is why I return again and again to what was agreed. There was agreed a choice of law forum, which, if you accept their view, stated to the master bonos, you must go to a judicial forum in order to obtain punitive damages under the choice of law. But then you go to the arbitration agreement, the next sentence, and it fits entirely into what you said in Volt, quoting from Perry versus Thomas, that state law must give way if the only way a person can get a remedy is to go to a judicial forum, and they have been... Uh, they have entered into this this arbitration agreement. And, and for example, in Perry versus Thomas, the, the, the California, state of California said in order to get a, a wage situation resolved, you had to go to a judicial forum. And what you said is that the state law must give way if if the state law says judicial forum alone. And it leads from the decision, you see it in McMahon, the concern about arbitration, the jealousy of the courts. And it is very paradoxical and ironic that this sophisticated group, the SIC, the industry and what, would fight for arbitration, would fight for this panel of three sophisticated People would state that judges and juries were not to be trusted. And then weep and whine and hand about the decision made in the form that they wanted by this mumbo-jumbo, now you see it, now you don't. Mr. Hartney, may I? Maybe I misunderstood your interpretation of this contract clause, but I thought you were presenting the simple case that, one, we have a choice of law clause, New York law. New York law permits punitive damages. And then we move on to the choice of forum clause, which is we're choosing arbitration under the NSAD rules, which are neutral. So you, you, you choose New York substantive law, which permits punitive damages. You've chosen arbitration, the arbitration forum, which is governed by, in this case, NASD rules, not California rules, as in the other case. And that's is as simple as that is your contract interpretation, I thought. But you, what I'm hear, hearing is a little more complicated. Well, if you if you move into a requirement, and I simply state that the choice of law of New York adopts the law that's not preempted by federal law. Federal law applies to that second sentence. If all you that's had what I'm saying, and that's you, preemption. If all you had in this contract was a choice of law clause, the New York law permits punitive damages. Yes. And, but that would say nothing about the forum. Then, going over to the forum, your position is, on the forum, the NSAD rules control. There's no inconsistency. Cor- correct. But if, if it is said that you cannot get punitive damages in an arbitration, either the master bonos get hit twice. First, they are said to have waived their right to punitive damages in any place but a judicial forum. Then they move to the next sentence and say they're going to arbitrate any controversy. And then 
It is claimed that they can't get punitive damages at arbitration because, again, they're hit with the choice of law. Thank you, Mr. Hart. Uh, Mr. Stewart, we'll hear from you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, in our briefs, and I think in the cases, we've spent a lot of time stressing the similarities between labor arbitration and Federal Arbitration Act arbitration, but I think there's one respect in which the two are different that's fairly central to this case. That is, in labor arbitration, the arbitrator's power is typically restricted to the interpretation and the enforcement of the collective bargaining agreement itself. And if a dispute arises between an individual employee and the employer based upon some other source of law, for instance, a Title VII claim, typically that would not be resolved by the arbitrator. It would be resolved in a judicial forum just as though there were no collective bargaining agreement. Under commercial arbitration under the FAA, the thing is really fundamentally different. That is, you do have a contract here. It's certainly possible that the master bonos could have filed an action for breach of contract, contending that Shearson-Lehman had breached its contractual duties. But the arbitrator's authority is not limited to suits arising under the agreement itself. Typically, the presumption is that the arbitrator will resolve disputes arising under all sorts of different other provisions of law that happen to involve the same transactions. And the arbitration agreement here stated that it would apply to all disputes arising out of or involving the petitioner's accounts. And consequently, it was always within the natural contemplation of the parties that the arbitrator might ultimately be called upon to apply a variety of of different bodies of law. And therefore, when the the contract said that the contract, the agreement, would be governed by the laws of the State of New York, it certainly implied that a breach of contract action would be governed by that law, but it certainly didn't imply that every aspect of every dispute between the parties would be so governed. And in fact, here, the petitioners filed claims based on federal securities laws, based on Illinois and Texas law. Obviously, nobody contended that New York law should have applied. So in your your view, this is just strictly a question of contract interpretation. You disagree with the the Court of Appeal? It's a question of contract interpretation subject to two caveats. First, that the policies underlying the FAA are influential in the interpretation of the contract, although they don't preclude the parties from agreeing to waive punitive damages if they wish. And second, it's our view that because this comes down to a matter of contract interpretation, ultimately great deference is owed to the views of the arbitrator. And therefore — We don't know what those views are, because the arbitrator never said, this is what the parties agreed and that's what I'm applying. It's typically the case, Your Honor, that arbitrators will not give the reasons for their awards. This Court recognized that in the the Steelworkers Trilogy, particularly in Enterprise Wheel. And the fact that the the arbitrator doesn't make clear what the basis for his opinion is doesn't mean that we don't defer, so long as there is, in a sense, it's like review of an act of Congress, and that the question is whether we can hypothesize a valid basis for the award rather than whether there is a statement. But in in those cases, uh, Mr. Stewart, there was a great deal of talk about the law of the shop and that sort of thing, (laughs) which is really peculiar to labor arbitration. And I don't think you have any factors like that here. It's certainly true that some of the factors that this Court has relied on in the labor cases in stressing the deference owed to the arbitrator are are unique to labor. However, this Court also recognized in Wilco v. Swan that the arbitrator's decision under the FAA is not subject to review for legal error. 
the Court has continued to recognize in McMahon, for instance, that the bases for overturning the arbitrator's decision remain limited. And the Courts of Appeals have uniformly been of the view that an arbitrator cannot be said to exceed his powers simply because the reviewing court believes that the arbitrator got wrong the question of contract interpretation. There has to be some sort of gross or clear error. Don't you have something more here, though? The arbitrator, in effect, said in so many words, I'm not really following the contract as written. I'm following its spirit. I'm doing justice here. Well, I, I don't uh, think... Doesn't the arbitrator, in effect, say, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm remaking it my way? We would certainly agree that if the arbitrator said, I'm ignoring the contract and acting on the basis of my own views of justice, that award should not be sustained, even if we could imagine a, a valid well, basis. He isn't but going to be quite that dumb, but he, he, he came close to that. I, I don't think, with respect, Your Honor, that that's what he said. What he said was that he was awarding punitive damages based on the authorities cited in the petitioner's brief to the arbitrator. And the petitioners made a number of arguments, some of which are quite similar to, to the ones that we're making today, that namely that if punitive damages are awardable in a judicial forum, they should or- ordinarily be awarded in arbitration as well. One of the other things they said, and it was really just a, a passing comment, was to the effect that the arbitrator should, could look to the spirit rather than the letter of the agreement. Well, if, if, if a reviewing court isn't sure and thinks maybe the arbitrator was just relying on some spirit or sense of justice and not relying on the contract terms at all, what is the reviewing court to do? Well, I, Send it back to the I, arbitrator? I mean, what's the role of the reviewing court? And is, is your office taking a position in this first options case that's going to be argued that seems to sort of raise this question? Well, I guess there are about three, three different answers I should give. First, the, the reviewing court will typically be unsure because typically arbitrators give no explanation at all. So that really can't this be the... This did give an explanation. And the explanation was, I'm doing it for the reasons stated in the petitioner's brief. And, and I think probably the best indication would... It, it's about a four-page brief. It contains a number of arguments. One of them was, you can look to the spirit rather than the letter of the agreement. But even that was taken as a direct quotation from a New York Court of Appeals case which said arbitrators can look to the spirit rather than the letter of the party's agreement. So even that isolated sentence was not an appeal to ignore the law. It was simply a statement of what the law was. As to the first options case, one of the questions presented is if a district court denies a motion to vacate an award, what should the standard of review be on appeal? And the flip side is the question presented here, namely, when a district court grants a motion to vacate award, an award, what is the st- standard of review? The conflict in the first options case is between the Third Circuit, which says de novo review of denial of a motion to vacate, the Eleventh Circuit, which says uh, an abuse of discretion review. But even the Eleventh Circuit in Robbins versus Day, which is discussed in the, the petition in first options, said that when you have a granting of a motion to vacate, that should be reviewed but de novo. So I think under the standard of, of any circuit, the, the Seventh Circuit was correct in reviewing de novo the determination of the, the district court that the arbitral award should be vacated. I, I want to address just briefly a comment that Mr. Justice Stewart, Souter... May I just ask, if going back before the first options question, wasn't that spirit of the law sentence followed up in this, that same brief by what I thought was the plaintiff's interpretation uh, the petitioner's interpretation of the contract, that is, the choice of law clause governed only New York substantive law, i.e. punitive damages are available, and arbitration was governed by the NSAD rules. That's correct. As I say, there were a number of arguments made in that brief, m- many of which are similar to the ones that we're making today. So it, it was not at all a brief which, in its essence, asked the, the arbitrator to avoid applying the contract. It was 
essentially a brief about how the contract should be interpreted. I want to return to a question that Justice Souter asked as to whether this is a case about the arbitrator's authority. And I think that there are two kinds of, of issues that may arise about authority. One is arbitrability, jurisdiction, whether a particular claim or grievance or cause of action was properly presented to the arbitrator rather than to the court. And certainly there are a number of this Court's decisions saying that the determination on that issue is for the court, albeit with a presumption of arbitrability. This is not a case about arbitrability. This is a case in which it is clear that the determination as to whether punitive damages should be awarded is to be made by the arbitrator. The only question is, what standard of law should the arbitrator apply? And the Court has held in, in Enterprise Wheel, in MISCO, that when, in W.H. Grace, that when a claim is clearly properly before the arbitrator, the arbitrator's determination as to what remedies are appropriate is typically entrusted to, to his sound discretion. And that's particularly true here when the propriety of the remedy turns on interpretation of the contract. That is, the respondents don't contend that the Garrity rule applies of its own force. They don't contend that there is some other provision of law which bars an award of punitive damages. They simply contend that the contract properly construed reflects the party's agreement that punitive damages will not be awarded. The question of whether they are right is a question of contract interpretation. The arbitrator evidently reached a different determination, and that judgment is entitled to substantial deference from the reviewing court. As to Volt, we think really that's the fundamental difference between this case and, and Volt. In Volt, the State Court determined that the choice of law clause was properly construed to incorporate California procedural rules. This Court said, we won't review that determination, assuming it's correct, the FAA does not prohibit enforcing the agreement according to its terms. Here, by contrast, the decision-makers whose judgment is entitled to deference, namely the arbitrators, concluded that the choice of law clause did not have that effect. I'm sorry. Thank you, Your Honor. Thank you, Mr. Stewart. Uh, Mr. Palazzato. Mr. Chief Justice, may it please the Court. Uh, I'm, I'm somewhat confused by the uh, preemption argument advanced by the petitioner. Uh, he's gone back and forth on that issue in the past. In, in our reading of this, these court, this Court's cases, particularly the Volt case, the overriding, if not the sole concern of the Federal Arbitration Act is the enforcement of the parties' agreement according to their terms. This Court has said that repeatedly in, in, in virtually every case decided in the mid-late 80s on the arbitration subject, and, and, and perhaps most explicitly as it pertains to this case in, in, in the Volt decision. Uh, the preemptive force, if any, that the FAA has is with respect to attempting to determine what the agreement of the party was, what the agreement of the parties were. So I am somewhat at a loss to understand the, the argument of preemption under the Federal Arbitration Act. Can I put, the, put my understanding of the argument before you and ask you to comment it? I suppose one could interpret the language governed by the laws of the State of New York in one of two ways, the way the Court of Appeals did, that it picks up the Garrity Rule. Or one can read it to say, apply the laws that a New York court would apply in, in the same controversy. Uh, and, and the arbitrator obviously took the latter, latter view. Uh, supposing under your view of the contract, New York law, instead of providing punitive damages, shall not be awarded, provided that no damages shall be awarded, an arbitrator shall only have authority to enter the equivalent of a declaratory judgment construing the terms of the contract. Would that foreclose the award of damages? That arguably might foreclose the award of damages, because uh, 
the claims sought to be brought under the uh, FAA uh, included uh, claims for compensatory damages. However, the, the preemptive force of, of, of the FAA with respect to what the, uh, uh, the party's agreement is, 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 is in, in my view, paramount and dispositive here. The, the, the contract argument now being advanced here was not, not advanced below. In our view, the, the only fair reading of the contract and the, and, the, and the clear constraint on arbitral authority here was that uh, New York law applies. New York law includes the Garrity rule, which is clear and unmistakable, and the arbitrators exceeded their power under Section 10A4 of the FAA in, in not uh, permitting an award of punitive Why is it a reasonable construction of this contract to say it's got a choice of law clause? Ordinarily, that means substantive law. Punitive damage is okay under New York law. It's got a choice of forum clause. That forum is arbitration governed by the NSAD rules. You read them compatibly to say New York law says substantive damages, sub, uh, punitive damages are okay. NSAD procedural law says it's neutral. And so that's a reasonable construction of the contract. Well, if the contract is ambiguous, you drew it. Well, what, there, it against you. I have several responses to that. First of all, under New York law, it's fairly clear that the Garrity rule itself is a substantive rule. It is more than simply a procedural rule. It's an extremely strong and powerful policy under New York law. And, any, and, and a fair reading of Chief Judge Bartel's opinion, I think, reveals that. In addition, so on the their face. could not have said, we want New York substantive law and not New York arbitration law. We want New York substantive law to govern, and then we want NSAD rules to govern arbitration. Suppose they had could, they could, they certainly could have done that. There's nothing obligatory about New York law. It's, this is for the parties to dispose of, right? I think that would have been a, a terribly confusing way of going about the issue had they it's done so. It's a question so. of what the parties mean, right? Correct. They can write their own law into the contract. So they say, as a shorthand, instead of writing out all the terms and conditions, we pick New York. Got good substantive law, good contract law. So we pick New York law to govern the terms and conditions, and we pick the NSAD arbitration rules. But the NASD rules themselves are totally silent on the issue of punitive damages. There's, there's which, a, which means they're allowed. Which means, which means that so far as the NASD rules are concerned, the arbitrator can award them. To the extent to the extent that the party's agreement otherwise would prohibit them. And in this case, the adoption of the New York choice of law provision, sweeping in the Garrity rule, it makes that prohibition. No, but the question is whether it does sweep in. The, I mean, you have admitted, and I think as you must, that the parties could draw their own bargain here. The question is, what bargain did they draw? And why isn't it a logical reading to say they picked up only New York substantive law? If you had nothing but that first sentence, you go into a court, because you have no arbitration. The agreement shall be governed by the laws of the state of New York. Bring that case in New York, you get punitive damages. The submission itself, the submission of the dispute itself before the NASD contemplated in, 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 the, in the submission, this is uh, uh, section 12 of the NASD Code of Arbitration. Are you reading from somewhere in, in your brief? Yes, page 29 of my brief. I'm reading from the NASD Code of Arbitration Procedure, section 12A. The claim is is submitted before the arbitrators as provided by a duly executed and enforceable written agreement. The claim itself incorporates... Now, where are you reading from? I'm reading from the uh, quote of the rule, actually, which is the blocked and indented quote on page 29 of of, uh, the respondent's brief. Okay, go ahead. On page 29. 
it includes other material provisions in the contract of which well, I, they, I don't, I, Are you sure you're on page 29? Yes. Of Respondent's Brief, page 29. And then to, to tell us again where, where you're reading from? I was reading, I was paraphrasing section 12 of the NASD Code of Arbitration Procedure. Well, maybe that's what I didn't get. I thought you were reading no. verbatim. No, I'm sorry, uh, Mr. Chief Justice. Mr. Palazzato, isn't, isn't the, 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 the choice open to you something like this? If you read the contract the way Justice Ginsburg was suggesting, there's no conflict and there's no ambiguity as between the, the choice of law provision and the choice of forum provision. If you read the contract the way you were suggesting, there is an ambiguity, but that ambiguity would normally be resolvable against you as the party who drew the contract. So either way, uh, you lose, and either way, the arbitrator's award should be upheld. Well, I would say this. Virtually every case that has reviewed this question, the question of the applicability of the New York choice of law provision uh, and whether it involves an, an, an exceeding of arbitral powers, has taken a fresh de novo review. Uh, and, and I think that that would be the appropriate uh, course here. Well, have each — I'm sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. Well, have, have, have each of the instances that you allude to been instances in which there was uh, a, 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 a potential conflict situation as between contractual provisions, so that the reading in question either uh, avoids the, the conflict, as, as in Justice Ginsburg's suggestion, uh, or uh, reads the other way to provide an ambiguity in which, under the, the rule of construing the contract against the maker, you would lose. Have, have I guess I don't see that, the conflict. in the case in all those instances that you would I lose? guess I don't see the conflict because the choice of law provision in this, in, in our agreement, is this preceding sentence to the dispute resolution provision, if you will. And I, and I think for, for a, a better and, and a pro more appropriate construction is that they're one and the same for this purpose. Mr. Polisano, do you think that uh, the New York law at issue here has any existence except as something to be referred to by private parties? That is to say, if it were not adopted voluntarily by the parties, would this New York rule be enforceable under our current interpretation of the FAA? I, I think the answer to that question is probably yes, and let me explain why. The Court has made quite clear that the FAA does not preempt the whole law of arbitration. Uh, and, in fact, there needs to be a clear and unmistakable uh, congressional intent to preempt. There's nothing in the FAA that says anything about punitive damages. So in the absence of an agreement between the parties on this question, I think it is entirely possible that uh, state, a state rule such as this would have applicability when New York law applies of its so, own so, in so we disagree with the government on that, on that, on that point. So instead of, uh, instead of declining to honor uh, arbitral awards, which uh, would violate the FAA, as we've interpreted it, the states could instead uh, render arbitral awards worthless by, by piece by piece saying you can't give punitive damages, maybe you can't give expectation damages, maybe you can give nothing but a declaratory judgment. Could they do that? And that would, that well, would not violate the FAA? The FAA has preemptive force in the context in which people are attempting to 
derive or, or, or get access to the arbitral form as an initial matter. And don't you think it means that the states cannot render the ar- arbitral form nugatory by simply saying, yeah, we have a general law, but this law won't be applicable in an arbitral form? It, it seems to me to violate the... It, it, may mean, it may mean that, Justice Scalia, but that's not this case. This case is a far clearer case. It be this case because if this provision of New York law is totally preempted and is only there so, it, so it's a handy referral for a private agreement which we've said can supersede the FAA, then maybe it's not New York law anymore. I mean, if, if it has no binding effect in and of itself, maybe it's not New York law. I mean, I don't consider it law if it's just something that can be referred to by the parties if they want to adopt it, but that could not be imposed upon the parties absent their agreement. You think this could be imposed on the parties absent their agreement? I think there's an argument to suggest that the FAA does not have the, the, the type of preemptive force that would override the, the natural uh, power of New York law in an appropriate case. But isn't it seems to me that your case may very well turn on that, because it strikes me as rather odd that if the parties simply agree to arbitrate without a choice of law clause or a mention of New York, and it happens to be that the transactions in New York, the parties in New York, they apply New York law, that they would apply the federal preemptive portion of New York law and ignore the Garrity rule. It seems to me rather strange that when the parties go one further step and say we want New York law, that suddenly uh, you interpret the contract as saying we want New York law absent prevailing federal preemption law. Uh, That that seems to me very odd. And it seems to me that that's what you have to say in order to win your case. Well, I, I think that's right to some extent, but that's because the animating policy and the animating preemptive force of the FAA is what did the parties agree to in this case. That's why I believe Justice O'Connor was correct in the very first question that she asked uh, the petitioner that fundamentally here what we are talking about is what did the agreement provide? On the question of what the parties could dispose of, these master bonos, as I understand it, brought this case in federal district court and you removed it. Is that correct? Correct. So if they had brought the case in New York federal district court, or they brought it in Illinois federal district court and said, see, this choice of law clause shall be governed by the laws of New York, and so we want compensatory and punitive damages. Suppose you had not asked to have the case dismissed because of the arbitration clause. You were not required to do that. That was something that no no law required, no Illinois law, no New York law, no federal law. It was yours to dispose of. So if they had just gone into federal court, and you hadn't asked to have the arbitral forum, they would have gotten compensatory and punitive damages, right? Assuming assuming they proved their case. And assuming that the judge and jury would have agreed the same way that the arbitrators did here. But but that is precisely the distinction that uh, is is so powerful with respect to to the Federal Arbitration Act. The provision that we relied on to, to, to compel the case was, of course, Section 4 of the FAA. And it doesn't say... Parties who are signatories to arbitration agreements, you can get orders from a federal court directing that the matter proceed in arbitration. What it says is that parties are entitled to an order directing that such matter arbitration proceed in the manner provided for in such agreement. Again, even in the procedural, largely procedural section of, uh, of, of, of Title IX relating to motions to compel, there is a hearkening back to what was the party's intent under the agreement. So that's why I keep coming back to Justice Ginsburg's original question. 
The question, as you see it, is what did they agree to? Correct. In my agreement, it says they agree to be governed by the laws of New York, and then they also agree that any controversy will be settled by the NASD rules. The NASD rules specifically say in their arbitrator's manual that punitive damages may be a remedy. So it seems, why isn't there at least an ambiguity as to what they meant? And once you find an ambiguity, then why aren't we simply required to follow what the arbitrator interpreted them to mean? The rules are, the manual are not the rules, first of all. The manual is the manual. But besides, that's, all I'm saying is, isn't it at least ambiguous as to what they meant? And once you find it even a little bit ambiguous, then doesn't the court, don't the courts have to follow the arbitrator's interpretation of the contract as to what they meant? In other words, isn't this case way north of MISCO? You don't have to get, you know, too technical about it. There's at least a big ambiguity here. I think the issue of arbitral power, I, I think to some extent you're, you're underestimating the force of Section 10 of the, of the Federal Arbitration Act, which specifically goes to the courts. It's a directive to the courts that says you are obligated to vacate awards to the extent that the arbitrators have exceeded their authority. Well, I mean, MISCO says, yes, that's right, but don't ever do it. Okay. And, and uh, that's in the labor area, so maybe it, we always used to follow it that way, in the Court of Appeals anyway. And now this isn't the labor area, so perhaps because it's not the labor area, it isn't true, don't ever do it. Maybe sometimes do it, but at least there, there I'm exaggerating, but you see my point. But there, there seems to me to be a distinction and a valid one between the question of whether an arbitrator has the power to award such relief and the question of whether under the facts of a given case, the arbitrators correctly exercise that power. We're saying that this is the former situation. I know, but I'm trying to get your answer to the question specifically. Isn't there at least enough ambiguity as to what they meant that we'd have to follow the arbitrator? Why not? Is it because the arbitrator didn't give that as a reason? Is it because there really isn't that ambiguity? What, in your view, is the basic reason why well, we don't one, have to follow one, one clear answer to that is the fact that this is not what the arbitrators were asked to do in this case. And normally, we pay no attention to that, except in extreme circumstances in a court of appeals. That is, normally, an arbitration award has no reasons. So, so normally, you don't really cross-examine the arbitrator. But part of the record, Why is this different? Part of the record in the district court was the submission made by, by the petitioners in which they urged the arbitration panel to disregard the law, disregard the authority and the constraints in that authority placed in, in the agreement that you signed. The next sentence contradicted that. The next, I mean, the parties say all kinds of things in their brief. First said spirit of the law. The second one said this contract means New York substantive law. So I, I don't think you can hang a party on one sentence in a brief that's contradicted by the next sentence. Except in this case, the application, I believe, and I think Garrity's, a fair reading of Garrity uh, indicates this, the Garrity rule, as it relates exclusively to arbitration, is a substantive pronouncement of law in, in the state of New York. And the petitioners can see this in their main brief. They say that flat out in their brief. Uh, I would also say, in partial further response to your question, Justice Breyer, there's a, there's a, uh, a happy uh, synergy, if you will, between the, the statutory language under Section 10, which speaks about arbitrators exceeding their powers, and, and, and the Garrity case itself. Garrity, Chief Judge Bartell, uses precisely the same word in, in, in disposing of the case right at the beginning of the case. He says, the holding of this court is that the arbitrators do not have the power 
to award punitive damages. Or that means we don't look at their reason. We assume that they would have given a right reason. So if they would have given a right reason here, namely he'd said specifically, there are two sentences in this contract, one of which seems to contradict the other. I interpret those two sentences to mean just what I said. Why would that exceed his power? Well, I suppose I don't agree with your interpretation of the contract. In other words, you're saying it's so And I don't think that the contract can be interpreted in that fashion. Uh, I think, to to, to some extent, uh, the Court needs to focus more on the the historic purpose of choice of law clauses generally. I think uh, under your analysis, Justice Breyer, uh, the, the clause here would be given short shrift. Uh, in fact, they are very important uh, aspects to American jurisprudence. They sweep in a whole compendium of issues that might otherwise bear on a, on a, on a, on a dispute that parties may have with each other. They're powerful. May I just point out this one problem? With the, it's the first sentence, of course, we're focusing on in the, in the agreement. And it says, the agreement shall be governed by the laws of the state of New York. Now, as I understand it, thinking, following up on Justice Ginsburg's thought, if the agreement had been construed in the federal court, it would have one meaning. It was construed by an arbitrator. It would have a different meaning. Uh, no, because this particular federal court uh, construed the agreement the same way. Uh, no, if the trial had been held in a federal court, oh, if you had not removed it. Th- th- then, there's, no, there's no question then, that. Then applying the laws of New York, the agreement would have a different meaning than it was given in this case, than, than, the district, than the court gave it in this case. But that's precisely the difference. We are in arbitration. The parties have a contract, and the contract defines the agreement. And, and, and the difference is, is that the Garrity Rule is a substantive rule that only relates to, to arbitrations. Uh, that's precisely the difference. We're not contesting that uh, these individuals, had we stayed in federal court, uh, might have been able to maintain state common law claims that might have had as a component some element of punitive damages. Of course, from a, from a procedural safeguard perspective. The first sentence has said, any proceedings held pursuant to this clause shall be governed by the laws of the state of New York. It says the agreement shall be governed. And then it's odd to say that the same law will give the same agreement two different meanings depending on what judge is interpreting. This is, however, a rather lengthy agreement, and I think the fact that these two, these, these two thoughts uh, are, are in tandem in the contract is, is, is of some significance. Well, it would still be governed by the same law, whether it brought in federal court or in arbitration, to wit, the law that you, you can't give punitive damages in arbitration. That, that rule wouldn't be contradicted by the federal suit. It just wouldn't be applicable in the federal suit. Absolutely. No, it's, it's not that two different laws would be applied. No, no that's, that's correct. Uh, I would, uh, again, uh, urge the Court that with respect to the preemption issue, it's, it's really a non-issue here. Vault controls that most particularly. I think the Court is correct in focusing on the contract questions. It's our view that the contract is clear. It's also, uh, if I may spend a few minutes on the on the section 10 argument i think that the government uh, government's advancement of their argument under section 10 which by the way is not an argument that the petitioners uh, advanced until the reply brief uh, is a, is an overly constrained reading of of, of the proper meaning of section uh, section 10a4 uh, 10a4 is a clear directive to the courts to act in appropriate cases that is something that is entitled to de novo action on the part of the courts uh, and, uh, and, and to, to read it in any other fashion does violence to uh, 
the force behind it. There are only limited bases upon which arbitration awards can be can be vacated. But to remove that basis, which is, I think, effectively what the government is arguing, from from a party who who, who believes to be aggrieved from an arbitration award, really uh, severely undercuts the. Uh, the, the, the force of, 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 the, of, of the vacation statute, Section 10. Uh, if the Court doesn't have any further questions, I would uh, rest. Thank you, Mr. Palazzato. The case is submitted. The Honorable Court is now adjourned until tomorrow at 10 o'clock.